morning. It's good to be back with you. It's been a while. I'd like you to take your Bibles. I'd like for you to turn to um, James chapter 1. We are going to be dealing with a subject that's um, not always, never a pleasant one. That's the subject of trials. Now trials, they come in all different shapes and sizes and colors, flavors. Sometimes you see them coming. Sometimes they blindside you. Sometimes they, they infect a group of people. They start with one and then it's like a disease. They spread to, to everybody around. My dad once said that, um, that trials were kind of like um, they come in bunches like grapes and as big around as basketballs. Trials are not fun. But the Bible has a lot to say about trials. And this morning we're going to be looking at part of what James, by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, has to say about trials. Turn to your scripture now. Let's look at it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet uh, trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lord, we ask now that you would take your word, that you would... uh, Open our eyes to it. Lord, we thank you that it is objectively your word. Whether the world chooses to believe it or not, it's still your word. And so so now, Lord, we ask that you would use your word to change us. Use your word to make us glorify you. Lord, give us receptive hearts. Give us ears that hear. And we pray that you'll be glorified in it all. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Rebecca is my youngest daughter, and uh, when she was just a young thing, she began to play the flute, and uh, she was so young, she was about six years old, and you know when you're that small, you can't play a flute way out here, a big instrument. So she had a flute that had a little curved head, specially designed for children, that she could bring it up close and play, and... um, one of the things that she had to do was was when she practiced, after she practiced, she always had to clean this flute. That was a, like a religious ritual. And, and she had to take a handkerchief uh, on a little stick and poke it down the moisture. Actually, it, it was spit that was in there and, and had to get the spit out. And one day she came to me and she couldn't get her head joint, that little curvy thing, she couldn't get it loose. It had somehow swollen and, and she came to her daddy to see what needed to be done. Well, like I said, I, I, I'm the daddy. We daddies do what we're supposed to, don't we? We do what we have to do. And I had a pair of vice grips and a set of channel locks. And um, three weeks and $200 later, we got her flute back. <laughs> I was just trying to do what I was supposed to do. Why didn't this thing turn out right? I mean, this, this, this is what dads do, isn't it? But somehow it turned into a, a costly trial for me. And it didn't endear me with anybody, the fact that I messed up or flute. You know, John Wayne once said, Life is hard, 
It's even harder when you're stupid. <laughs> Trials are going to come our way. They're, like I said, we sometimes they blindside us. Other times we see them coming. But it's for sure. I, I think you guys know Murphy's Law, don't you? And I'm not, I'm not a pest. Well, maybe I am. But I still think Murphy's Law is a reality. Murphy's Law states, if anything can go wrong, it will. And like I said, that might seem pessimistic, but you've got to remember that we do live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is messed up by sin. Now, Murphy's Law also, I don't know if you knew this or not, but it also has some sub-points. If anything can go wrong, it will. Sub-point number one. If it does go wrong, when it goes wrong, it's going to happen at the worst possible time. Another sub-point is when it does go wrong, at the worst possible time, it's going to happen to me. You know, it's just the nature of trials in a fallen world. And these are the things that just kind of naturally come our way. But you know, you're going to experience trials at the hands of people too because you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hate to tell you, but you already know this, the world hates you. You may do good to the world. They may like the good that you do uh, for them. But they're going to hate you and what you stand for. As a result, you're going to be persecuted in one way or the other, to some degree or the other, and that will come off as a trial. You're going to suffer as a believer. The Scripture says, Indeed, all those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. But God loves us, right? So why does all this bad, nasty stuff happen to us? Why do we have these trials? Well, the book of James speaks to this problem. He, he calls these catastrophes, the big ones and the little ones, he just calls them trials. And uh, what do we know about the book of James? Well, it was probably written between 44 and 62 A.D., and it addresses the Christians who were, were scattered abroad. You see that dispersion in Acts chapter 12. You see, the Lord Jesus had said to the believers, and when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Now, what happened was that these believers stayed right there in Jerusalem in their holy huddle, and um, that was not God's intent for them. And so a persecution came upon them, caused them to spread about. And, and they were dispersed to the four winds. But they took their faith with them. Having said that, though, it wasn't an easy time. Now, something else we know about the uh, book of James. It is one of the most Jewish-flavored books that you'll find in the New Testament. And uh, it was, in reality, written by, and, and there are several Jameses in the New Testament, right? But it would seem that the evidence is that this book of James was written by the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. Now, there's reasons why we say that. We won't go into that now. Uh, but the, the, it seems like the proof is there. And apparently, if we look at Scripture, James did not believe that the Lord Jesus was indeed the Son of God. He was a skeptic. He was a heckler. And it was only after 
the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. After the Lord and Savior appeared to him, you see that in John chapter 7, and you hear about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that he became, that what, the Lord changed his life. He became a believer. And what's more, he went from this skeptic to become first and foremost leader in the church in Jerusalem. He became known in the church as James the Just or James the Righteous. He was well known because of his holiness. His nickname, do you know what his nickname was? They called him Camel Knees because he spent so much time in prayer that his knees got calluses. All this from the former heckler of his half-brother, the Lord Jesus. And James was no foreigner to trials himself. If history serves us correctly, he was martyred by the scribes and the Pharisees who threw him from the pinnacle of the temple. And if history tells us right, that did not kill him. He was stoned at that point. And he still didn't die, so he was beaten to death with a fuller's club. Trials, tribulations. All this from a former heckler of the Lord Jesus, totally sold out, committed to the point of death, to his half-brother, God in flesh. Now James, if you look at this passage here, he really could have pulled out some credentials. He could have pulled out the stops and pulled rank by opening the letter saying something like, well, James, son of the former Virgin Mary, Brother of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, I knew him when he was growing up. I knew Jesus before he was a superstar. Some of you are old enough to remember that song. But James and his brother Jude, who wrote the little book of Jude, both half-brothers of the Lord Jesus, both of them opened their letters by calling themselves servants. The word actually means slaves. It means that they were property of their masters. They had no particular rights. They lived to do their master's will. And James adds, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I said, Jesus wrote, or excuse me, James wrote this book to the twelve tribes that were dispersed abroad. They were scattered. The main readers of James's letter here were Jewish Christians who lived outside of Israel. Now, as a pastor, which he, he was quite an example uh, of an early pastor, as a pastor, James writes the scattered Jewish believers to make a point. Now, listen to this. True faith shows itself in practical, godly living in spite of the circumstances. His main point is that true biblical faith works and has works. So now, he talks to these believers who had to leave their homes, their friends, their families, their way of lives, maybe their livelihood. And this is what he says in a nutshell. When... We have trials. We should count it as a joy submitting to God 
and knowing that He's going to use these trials for our maturity. That's a message for us today, isn't it? But I have to admit to you, I don't like that message. If it takes trials to make me grow, I think I would rather remain a spiritual baby. Thank you very much. I'd rather crawl into the corner here of the church and suck my spiritual thumb. I don't like trials. Trials can be painful, costly. They're inconvenient, often devastating, life-changing. Many trials can't be reversed. They have long-lasting effects, and they might leave us suffering our whole lives. What are the trials in your life? How do you cope with these trials that you personally have? What do you do? Well, as we look at this passage... I'd like to examine what I think are three principles here as we get into the Scripture. Three principles. Principle number one. We must adopt a radical attitude in trials. Consider it all joy. Now consider means to weigh something out. It means to deliberately and carefully um, judge something based upon external proof and not subjective judgments based on feelings. Now let's talk about that for just a moment. Now emotions are run very strong and powerful when we encounter severe trials. It's natural and it's okay. But once those emotions have settled down a bit, we need to think about the trial from a biblical perspective. Let's consider this radical attitude here. Count it all joy. A, first of all, This radical attitude of counting it all joy, it accepts trials as expected and not a surprise. James doesn't say if you encounter various trials, but when. It's not an elective. It's required in the school of faith. You're going to encounter the trials. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which has come upon you for your testing. And he goes on. But his readers understood what he meant uh, by fiery ordeals. See, if if, um, tradition serves us correctly, it's said that Nero at that point would ride around in his gardens at night naked in his chariot and drunk. And the way he lighted his way through his gardens was by making Christians human torches. They understood exactly what it meant to experience fiery ordeals. Now, we don't understand that much today. Many Christians think, and and there are people on the TV and so forth that will tell you, if you come to the Lord, everything is going to be great. You're going to have... You're going to be healthy. You're going to have success in your business. You'll have money. You're going to have plenty of friends. <coughs> and you're going to be spared from trials. Well, that's not what I see when, whenever I look at the Scripture. But Christians that believe that, when the trials do hit them, they become fused, confused and they become angry at God. Uh, and and they'll, they'll look to heaven and say, God, I was, I was following you. Why did you let this happen? But the Bible teaches us that we all encounter trials. 
And these trials are not necessarily because of our disobedience. These trials are not necessarily a discipline. They can be. But rather, God uses them to test our faith. And they're going to be different. Each kind of trial that we go through are going to, is going to be different according to what God's wanting to do in your life. Now, we can't often, sometimes we do, but we, we don't always understand the particular pro, uh, trial that God sends to us. But whatever it is, you can know that it is from Him. B. This radical attitude that we have to adopt, count it all joy, it doesn't require that we deny our emotional pain. It doesn't. Jesus did not condemn Mary for weeping at the death of her brother Lazarus. Instead, he cried too. It says so in John 11. When Jesus himself faced death, when he faced the trials of life, he did so, it tells us in Hebrews 5, with loud crying and tears. The Apostle Paul tells us, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Easy to do that, isn't it? But he also tells us to weep with those who weep. So James doesn't tell us, uh, put on your happy face and pretend you're not hurting. You've probably known Christians like that, that anything can happen. And, and, and they've always got a smile on their face. And quite honestly, when I encounter people like that, I really want to go, go to their home and see what's in their medicine cabinet. Um, uh, maybe we all need a, No, we won't go there. Um, it's okay to experience these emotions. It's okay to have sorrow. You don't have to keep a stiff upper lip. That's not what James is talking about. Uh, but point C, this radical attitude, count it all joy, it is not natural. It is different. That's why we call it radical. Now, while believers grieve, and we do grieve, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. You see, that's the key right there. Our response to trials should show how we are different from the world. You know, things might be falling apart around us. Things might be falling apart within us. But we can still say, although this, this hurts, we can tell the world, although this hurts, my God is still on the throne and He still loves me. Underneath the grief and the tears, there should be that confidence that God is in control and that He works all th things together for the good to those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. In essence, His children. Biblical joy is not really a natural optimism. That's not what it is. Rather, it's, it's, it's the joy and the hope of God and His promises from His Word, despite the circumstances. D. This radical attitude that we're talking about, this first principle, it results from a deliberate choice. And the choice is simply this. When the trial comes, when things start falling apart, when things blow up, when things get intense... The question is, will I trust God and His promises or no? It's that simple, isn't it? As James says, it's our faith that's being tested. And we really don't know if our faith is genuine or not until it stands up under the test. You know, you can go out to Fleet and you can buy yourself a rain jacket 
And you can show it to your buddies around here and say, look at my neat rain jacket. I'm going to be ready for the rain. But you don't know until you step out into the deluge. You don't know if that jacket is really what it says it is until you see if it repels water or not. If it does, you've got a good jacket. If, you, if it does, then your jacket has stood up under the test. Now, the same is true with our faith. It's easy to say, oh, I trust in God, I trust in God. Anybody can say that. But the proof of your faith that you really do uh, trust God is how you react in a severe trial. Afterwards, if you stood up under the test... You know that your faith was genuine because it brought you through the trial. The point is, when you are faced with a trial, you have a choice. Will I trust God and His promises or will I fall apart? You know, there's something to standing on God's Word, even if we don't understand all of it. There was a man named Keith Bailey, and he... uh, started the predecessor of Mokaham Ministry Center. I think it was called Mokaham Bible School years and years and years ago. And um, after that, I think it went on maybe for about 20 years, and then it closed. And about eight years ago, we opened again as as Mokaham Ministry Center. But Keith Bailey, in an interview with him, and he has has a book called Strange Gods, if you ever get a chance to read it. But early in the days of Mokaham Bible School, With the students, there was a lot of demonic activity. Um, And uh, Keith said, we we really didn't know how to deal with this. I mean, here's a white guy ministering to uh, (coughs) formerly traditional native people. Didn't have a whole lot of experience at this. And I have to confess, too, that the day that we talked about demonic activity at seminary, I must have been out that day. I don't remember it at all. But nevertheless, Keith said, we didn't know what to do because we hadn't encountered it. So we had to go to Scripture and say, okay, what, how does Scripture say that we're supposed to handle situations like this? And we just tried to do what the Scripture said. And you know what? It worked. How great a stimulus for our faith when we step out, use God's Word, and see Hey, this really is true. So, count it all joy. Well, there's a second principle here. We should understand a very reassuring truth in trials. This reassuring truth. Knowing that your faith produces endurance. Now, there's a couple of aspects to this reassuring truth. First is remembering that God is sovereign over every trial. This verse implies that God is using trials for His purpose. He's not sitting up there in heaven and looking down and saying, Oh my, they've done it again. How am I going to fix it this time? They get themselves in such a mess, and how am I going to make this work out uh, for them? He's not up there wringing His hands. No. Scripture is clear that God is in control of everything from the rain and the snow that fall 
It tells us so in Job. To the so-called random events like the casting of the lot it talks about in Proverbs. To the events of nations. You see that all through the scripture on a personal level. God has ordained all the days of your life and all the circumstance of your life before you were ever born. What about the bad stuff? Doesn't that make him a bad God? No, it makes him God. God's holy. Now, there are some who look at it from man's perspective, and they, they try to get God off the hook They say, when it comes to trials. They say, oh, this is such a horrible thing. It could never be within God's plan. They argue that God doesn't rule over everything or even know what's going to happen in advance, that it, it's all dictated by the choices that we make. But the Bible teaches that God is control of every, in control of everything. Natural disasters, you see that in Genesis 6. The evil things that people do, you see that from the Scripture. Uh, even though He is never responsible for sin. Even down to birth defects. What did I say? Yes, birth defects. Did He not say in Exodus 4 to Moses, The Lord said to Moses, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf? Or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You see, God is in control of everything. But we look at it from a human perspective and we think, oh, ain't it awful? Not from God's perspective. He has a plan. He has a plan for His people and He's going to work all things to our ultimate good. And we have to remember that. But God. As a second part of this, God is using these trials to make us stronger. That's one of His purposes here. Now I want you to picture for me, do I have any runners out here? Okay, very good. Now I, I have to confess to you, I, I always hated running. I guess I still do. But, um, but I'm, I admire people that do that. Um, I really do. But it, imagine a fellow like me. Uh, that and I decide that I'm going to do a five or a ten k race. Now I have to work toward that, don't I? Maybe I'll start out with a goal of of running five k's, and maybe I'll do that for a while until I get faster and faster. Then I'll work my way up to ten k's. Now if I'm really smart, I'll go beyond that and I'll start running twenty k's uh, as as hard and fast as I can because the day of the ten k race. It's going to be easy peasy if I've been running 20 kilometers. Now, in the same way, we endure trials. When we endure those trials, our faith gets stronger for the next step. And we know that we can endure because we've already been through previous trials. And we, when we endure trials by faith, with joy, it brings glory to who? To whom? It brings glory to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So now, we know that when we encounter trials, we should first of all encounter them with a radical attitude, right? Of counting it all joy. We know that when we encounter trials, we also need to encounter, encounter them understanding that we have a reassuring truth that God is sovereign over everything and that He is using this trial to develop 
our faith and our strength. But there's a third principle here. That principle is, and this was a hard one, that we should submit to God in this refining process and trials. Let endurance have its perfect result. That word let implies a bit of a choice there. It implies a submission to God in the face of trials. Now, submitting to God when we have trials, it doesn't mean rolling over and giving up. That's not what it means at all. Uh, Take, for instance, Paul. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but uh, the Scripture tells us that Paul prayed three times that God would remove that thorn. He was proactive. Yeah, it was a trial for him. And uh, at the end of the, the three times after he prayed, God said, No, Paul, I'm not taking it away. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. God gets the glory through the trial, um, the thorn that Paul had. My grace is sufficient for you. Being submissive to God doesn't mean that we don't take steps to remedy the problem. If the trial is the loss of a job, well, it's right to look for another job. If the trial is an illness, if you're sick, it's not only right to pray, but to seek medical help. If the trial is a difficult circumstances, or a difficult circumstance, it's right to try to change that circumstance. So, what do we mean then? when we say we're supposed to submit to trials. Well, I think that submission is really your attitude toward God. It's where you don't, when when you encounter the trial, you don't defiantly stand back and shake your fist at God and say, you have no right. Why did you do this to me? No. Anytime, and, and, and we still try to seek solutions for our trials. But if we seek solutions with bitterness in our heart, apart from faith and prayer, then we're doing it wrong. Sometimes we have to take the medicine just so that we'll get better. But we need to recognize a couple of things, though. First of all, recognize that these trials producing your maturity... Well, maturity is a process. It's not instant perfection. It takes time, and we often find out that we have to repeat lessons. Uh, I had a friend years ago that we would work out in martial arts a lot, and he he had nunchuckers, or do you know what those are, nunchuckers? And um, he had some rubber ones. And try as he would, he could never get very good with them. Well, he exchanged them. I mean, he was always beating himself and, and missing his his moves and so forth. Well, he exchanged those rubber nunchakas for some wooden ones. And boy, did he ever begin to learn quickly. Sometimes it takes a little pain uh, for us to learn our lessons. This school of maturity, the sad thing is that we don't graduate until we get to heaven. But secondly, if we submit to these trials that we have. We will grow in spiritual maturity. God's goal in trials is that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to arrive at a state of absolute perfection 
or perfect maturity in this life. Rather, it's the idea that you're going to be spiritually mature enough and well-equipped enough for the purpose that God has called you and created you for, that you might glorify Him and that you might be a witness to a fallen world. You're going to be mature enough for the jobs that He's given you to do, and you're going to have the tools to do it with. Okay, let's wrap up here. Trials. We don't like them. I told a student, I had a student at Oak Hills Christian College, and I was speaking frequently at churches, and he always got excited to hear about what I was preaching about. One Monday morning he came by and says, Oh, what did you preach about this past Sunday? I said, I talked about trials. His response, Oh. And as politely as a Christian young man can, he changed the subject. You see... Nobody wants trials. Nobody wants to talk about them. No one wants to think about them. Um, Nobody wants to deal with them. God knows that they're hard for us, but they make us grow. And there are some things that we can remember that will help us ease the pain. Things that we got from this passage. First of all, take a radical attitude toward trials. Don't act like the world. Count it joy. Do it by faith. Secondly, recognize the reality of the reassuring truth that first of all, even in trials, God is in control. He has ordained them and recognize the reality that they're going to produce endurance in you. And thirdly, submit to these trials. When they come your way, don't shake your fist at God. Learn from them so that you don't have to repeat the lesson again. Trials. You're going to have them. It's not a question of if. It's it's a question of when. When are they going to come your way? And when they come your way, how are you going to react? Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask that you'd use it in our heart. Lord, we don't relish trials, but when we have them, Lord, help us to react in a way that brings glory to you and that strengthens our faith. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read his account of when Jesus brought his disciples together just before he went to the cross. And we read that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. One of the truths that this table points us to this morning is that the Lord God himself shows us that he is trustworthy Even in the midst of great trials, horrible circumstances, and difficult afflictions in life. Why? Because God the Father has gone through the greatest trial there ever was. Sending His own Son into this life to live a life of perfect love and obedience and then to be offered up as a sacrifice. That our sins that we deserve to die for would be put upon Him.
And his righteousness that he rightly earned would be credited to us. And then Christ spilled his own blood. So much so that on the cross, the Father and the Son were alienated from one another. The Son crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father in heaven knows what true trials are. And he gives us a taste of the promises that he has given to us. That he will never leave us. That he will never forsake us. And that his love for us can never fail. Why not? Because Jesus' body and blood have been given for us to secure those promises eternally for us. So if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've made a public profession of that faith in Christ here at Trinity or another church that believes God's word is true and the gospel is by grace alone, then as the elements are coming around to you, eat and drink and remember all that he has done for you. And know to this, that as we eat in faith, as we drink in faith, the Holy Spirit takes what we do. And by faith, as we do it by faith, he works in us, causing us not just to remember, but also to have strength throughout this week. That no matter what comes, what trials, what afflictions, what circumstances of life, that we'll be strengthened in our faith to believe Him and to obey Him. So let's pause for a moment and thank Him for giving us this table. Our Heavenly Father, we come before You with thankful hearts that You give us Your Word and sacraments. We thank You for the reminder this morning from Your Word that indeed You use the trials that we experience in this life to form and shape us into the people that You desire us to be. And we thank You, Father, for the promise that we remember as we eat and drink at the Lord's Supper. That your love has been perfectly demonstrated through your Son's death on our behalf. And that as we eat and drink in faith, you remind us of your promises to love us and to never leave us nor forsake us. Help us, Father. Help us as we eat and drink to believe these wonderful truths. Strengthen our faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.